And when people go, why do I have so much anxiety or depression? I'm going, because you're living in a toxic world, social world. It's like, that's a normal response. There's nothing wrong with you for having those feelings. The dilemma is how can we join our own consciousness together to focus on ourselves individually and society culturally to make those changes. Welcome to the Reach New Heights podcast, where we dive deep into all things self-healing, transformation, and building dreams. I'm Julie Householder, and it is my passion to share powerful tools to empower you to transform your life and reach new heights. Let's get started. Hello, good people. For a mindfulness moment, just relax and listen to the words, please. I'm assuming many of you have seen this symbol, which is Namaste, come from the East, come to Hindu, more likely than not. Let me just read you what that is about. I honor the place in you in which the entire universe dwells, that place of love and light and of truth and of peace. When you are in that place in you and when I am in that place in me, during those moments, we are connected, we are one. What a sweet way to greet someone, don't you think? I'd love to take a moment to introduce our incredible guest, Dr. Neil Klein. Dr. Neil Klein has taught at Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts for the past 40 years, teaching classes in cutting edge psychology, counseling, holistic health and wellness, and cross-cultural psychology. He is the author of a new operating manual for being human, and his most recent publication, Me, Myself, and Mindfulness, The Arithmetic of Consciousness. Neil has over 30 years experience as a practicing psychotherapist. One of his life quests has been to help expand the current prevailing paradigm that we as human beings and psychologists use to formulate our beliefs regarding what is humanly possible, emphasizing the nature of consciousness and human potential. He has taught swing and ballroom dance for over 25 years, He's the owner of both Dancing Feet Swing and Ballroom and the Dancing Fools. He teaches swing dancing at Lesley University and frequently highlights the focus on nonverbal communication and partner dancing as the essence of any lead follow dance, which demonstrates paying attention to the visual and tactile clues. Welcome, Neil. Thank you so much for joining us. My absolute pleasure. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about you, your story, and what drew you to the holistic psychology world? Gladly. As an undergraduate studying psychology in the late 1960s and early 1970s, when behaviorism was dominant, my undergraduate program at a very good school was to run rats through mazes oftentimes. And I couldn't ever understand how that would help me understand the complexity of human beings. My mouth always gets me into trouble and serves me well. And I'd oftentimes say that in class that faculty members didn't particularly like to hear that. I did have the chair of our psychology division urge me to become a religion or theology major because what I wanted to study was there. And my response has always been, we need to expand the limiting field of psychology to include the spiritual, to include the mystical. How could you possibly not include what may be the most important part of our mind, the most important part of our consciousness, and even further than that, maybe our evolutionary leap as humans into why we are here as part of the process of evolution and where we're heading. And that's been my dominating thought since my 20s with almost everything I do with teaching um, and even with dance, because when I'm dancing, 
in a partner dance, it's a mystical moment because if anybody leaves the moment within a second, the other person knows it's like, what's this happened here? There are two moving bodies and one of you have your eyes closed, not really have their eyes closed, but it's you're not in the moment with us. So I think a lot of what I've done in my life so far is part of that. And I'm thrilled that at Leslie University, they have allowed us to develop five psychology majors, which is so exciting. My favorite one by far is holistic psychology and wellness, because that doesn't exist in any other undergraduate school on the planet. We have an undergraduate counseling psych major, an undergraduate traditional psych major, an undergraduate expressive arts therapy major, and an undergraduate art therapy major, which means Imagine the courses and the titles of the courses and for electives, imagine what students can take when they leave our school. And I do think they are exceptional as far as if I put them up against any other student from any other school, they're learning what the future of psychology and, soci and, and the social world is going to need. And that's unfortunate that for many psych programs, the intent is research. And I think a lot of people that take a psychology major don't realize that that research is what they're being trained to do, where many of them want to be clinicians and many of them want to look at holistic health at the same time. So that's been um, the, the motivating force for 50 years. Um, for anyone not familiar with holistic psychology, what is holistic psychology and why is the development of holistic psych so important to the psychology field, as well as just greater society? Great question. Other names for holistic psychology could be integral psychology, could be positive psychology, could be humanistic psychology, could be transpersonal psychology, could be somatic psychology. I can keep on going, but I'll stop. What's happening is most psych majors and most schools of psychology are looking at humans from, uh, hopefully they're looking at humans, that's not always the case. And hopefully it's all genders, that's not always the case. But they're looking at some degree of illness to some degree of normalcy. And that would be a traditional psych major. Here's what's missing for that half of the spectrum. And the half of the spectrum is beyond some degree of normalcy to health and wellness. Our major looks at from illness all the way to health and wellness. That's not what our traditional academic majors have at other schools or that the courses are there perhaps to have students understand that health and wellness is part of our heritage and there's a complete spectrum. So I think that is huge. The simple way to understand and describe holistic psychology is we've got to deal with the mind. We've got to deal with the relationship between the mind and the body. And most people don't like their body, so that's a hard thing to do. Most people don't like parts of their mind, so that's a hard thing to do. And then in addition to the mind and the body, we need to look at the spirit. And the spirit is an energetic vibrational part of who we are. Does our identity and fullness end where our body ends? The answer from many psychologists and all the quantum physicists is screaming, no, not at all. Who we are goes beyond our physical body. So holistic psychology is looking at the three of those components. And again, most people when they study psychology focus on the mind, which we'll talk about the persona and the shadow later, the part of our personalities that we like to put out to others, the mass like this is who I am, and the deeper part that's kind of going, oh, I know this is me, but I don't want you to ever see this and that's all counseling and psychology with just the mind alone, okay, without bringing the body or the spirit. Syntropy is my favorite word that most people have never heard. Here's what we do know to some extent, and here's what is the basic basis of our medicine in this culture in the West at this moment in time. Entropy is you go to a doctor because something's not working, something's broken down. 
my foot's not working, my mind's not working, my intestines are not working, my heart's not working, please fix it. I'm gonna be passive about this, you're gonna tell me what to do. Again, that's half of the spectrum, things break down. But let's look at many examples. You look at the simplest form of a human being that grows and grows and grows from an infant to a child to an adult, and then that's all syntropy, which is things have to grow from a beginning to a level of complexity, and then they start breaking down. If you look at an acorn, it's gonna become an oak tree. There's no relationship whatsoever between that acorn and an oak tree, you would never see it. However, we know that somehow inside, some degree of intelligence greater than us as human beings have that whole spectrum of syntropy and entropy, the yin and yang of healing. And again, most psych programs and most medical programs are based on entropy. Things are breaking down. No question about how true that is. However, there are, there are Nobel Prize winning biologists and amazing human beings, much more knowledgeable and smarter than I am, who talk about the fact that syntropy has to be included when we're looking at human beings developing and we look at, at the smallest substructures that we can possibly find and the cosmos and beyond, that that dynamic is there everywhere. And somehow, once again, we are, not, we are limiting our understanding of what's real. How do we get to health and healing and peace in all those places we'd like to be if we're not looking at the whole perspective of what needs to happen and adjust and be adjusted if those are our intentions? And when we're only focusing on dis-ease, uh, we're just going to see more of that. When I started changing my perspective from like, how do I get rid of these symptoms to how can I move from surviving to thriving in life and recognizing that no matter where we are, we still have so much room for growth and expansion, regardless of what life stage we're in. And that's probably the, the most important sentence on the planet ever. And everyone says that in a different way. But my favorite line is by Deepak Chopra, who, who I'm assuming some of your listeners know. If not, please check out Deepak Chopra. He's wonderful. Attention energizes and intention transforms, which means if I'm going, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this you're energizing and strengthening the synaptic connections in your mind to live in, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. Although once intention is probably, I wanna be away from this, which means if that's where you're putting your, your attention, you're building and nourishing the wrong part inside of your brain, inside of your heart, as opposed to going, attention energizes. If you wanna make a change, intention transforms. So do it differently. Go someplace by a different road change your, your norm to do something else. Dr. Joe, Joe Dispenza, who I also like what he says a lot, clearly has a 10 minutes and 20 minutes TED Talks these days and videos these days. And the essence of what he's saying is, before we get out of the house in the morning, if we've done our norm, we brush our teeth the same way, we get out of the bed the same way, we have our coffee the same way, we've already pre-programmed our minds to live in who we were yesterday, which if we want to change into who we want to be tomorrow, our intentions are going against our behavior. What we really want to have happen is not what we are doing. And I think most people don't realize that and get stuck for lifetimes. One of the saddest clients I ever had, who was a medical doctor with a family and he was in his 80s, came to talk to me because he still didn't get, he never got his father's love. And I'm going, oh my God, here's a very established person who's still living in the past and had making major decisions and conscious attention on didn't get my father's love. What am I going to do there? What a sad and silly moment in time. And we all do that to an extent. And many of us, that's our norm. I think the fact that we all have mind chatter in a narrative 
Everybody knows that. And then the question is, how do I get this to be quiet? How do I have this on a rheostat so I can at least turn it down, if not shut it off when I want to shut it off? The, and even going back to Sigmund Freud, he spoke about three narratives, the id, the ego, and the superego. I'm not going to go into that at the moment. But way back in the day, he was talking about we each have not just one narrative, but multiple internal narratives. I think that's where the concept needs to be understood. And different forms of therapy and different psychologists have come up with different names and different numbers of internal narratives. But I think all of us almost agree that we have numerous internal narratives. So here's the question. If I had three friends externally, they were all giving me opinions about something that they wanted me to do. The first thing I would do is kind of go, okay, which of these three different human beings do I want to listen to at this moment in time? And if I really had one narrative from a group of friends, a friend that said, let's play, 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 there are moments that's where I want to listen to. If I've got another narrative saying, this is the right thing to do, there are moments in time, that narrative I want to listen to. The dilemma is because we don't separate the internal narratives and to some extent name them, I think most people don't know what to do with the internal narratives because they think it's one narrative and it's not, it's different voices with different intentions speaking inside. So the beginning of going, what's a map that works for everyone where they can kind of go, now I get my internal narratives so I can understand which one do I want to follow, I think is a great place to start. One of the workshops that I love to do these days is called The Girl with the Four Brains. And it goes back into, as a psychology professor, whenever possible, I'll ground something in the world of biology or, or physics. Because I think that's an easy way for people to go, holistic psychology? Are you just wearing rose-colored glasses? What's wrong with you? How can you look at it, everything that way? And it's kind of like, no, let's look at the science of it all, which is increasing every day as far as um, how the study of psychology will change because of biology and the course of quantum physics in the next decade. Okay, amen. Um, so if we look at the evolution of our brains, at the end of our spinal cord, we have a little bulb and it's called the brainstem. Which when there are reptiles on this planet alone, that and still today, that's their brain. They have a brainstem. What does a brainstem do inside of us, our reptilian part of our brain? The message which is screaming at us is stay alive, stay alive, stay alive, stay alive, in all the ways that that's important. Not stay alive as a member or a family, but stay alive as an individual entity. And that's our loudest internal narrative. And I think many people hear that being so loud that that's what they listen to. And we look at wars, if I'm, if I'm just hanging out late at night and seeing two guys getting to a, 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 a fight, I kind of go, they're both in their narrative brains going, this is about me, no, this is about me, let's duke it out. And it's kind of like, that's our most basic brain and the loudest. However, it's the most, it's not where we're going as a species, it's what we have in common with all mammals and all reptiles. That's great, however, we do more than that. And then evolution gave us a mammal brain. What can mammals do in a simple way that reptiles can't do? In addition to forming tribes and families and working together and hunting together and raising children together and towns together, it also has the large effect of feelings. Um, so all that's happening in our mammal brain. So that would be our second part of our brain. And it would be also pretty loud. If someone has a strong feeling, it's not whispering at us, it's screaming at us. Okay, if someone has a member of their family or extended family or town or country that is, is, is part of who they are, we could also 
do stuff positively and negatively, depending on our identification with that town, with that country, with our species versus the environment. It's the same separation everywhere. The third part of our brain is our distinctly human part of our brain, which has two hemispheres. The left hemisphere is analytical, it's sequential, it's rational. And to answer the question easily, most easily, what does our left hemisphere do? The world we've created is created from our left hemisphere, okay? Thinking is more important than feeling. The reality of what you can see and touch and here in this world is more important than dreaming about possibilities, which would be sensation is more important than intuition. And that's the world we've created. And that's the social structure we've created. And I get how important that is. However, that's half of our distinctly human brain. And as we were talking about earlier, um, Jill Bolte-Taylor's 18 minute tech, TED talk, My Stroke of Insight, who is a, 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 a neuroanatomist, how left hemisphere is that? How analytical is that? She had a stroke and she was living in her right hemisphere. And she talks about having two different personalities having conversations inside of her brain when she had her stroke. Our right hemisphere, as far as I'm concerned, is intuitive, it's holistic, it's interactional, it has feelings, and it is probably where our evolutionary jump is gonna happen when we begin to interact with other human beings and create societies using our whole brain, not that the left hemisphere isn't vitally important. That gives us the tools to make something happen. What it doesn't give us is the direction to have something happen. What are we trying to create? What's our intention? And if we don't include our right hemisphere forcefully, what we're gonna be doing is following our reptilian and mammalian brain and creating a world based on, this is gonna keep me alive, this is gonna keep my family or my country or my town together, forget about everything else. And that's what we're doing. And we see the effect of that. And it's just, part of who we are as a human being, but it's, it's not including the higher reaches of our human consciousness. It's not including what we are capable of doing. And unfortunately, it's hard to get a discussion going about that because most people don't even believe that that's humanly possible. Although once again, the science is getting louder and louder every year about how not only is that possible, but it's necessary. And the workshops I do in the, the Girl with the Four Brains is literally talking about how do we live our life, including the, the, all four narratives and knowing which part is speaking and naming them. So when I have to go inside of myself internally and kind of go, which part do I want to listen to? They're all part of our wholeness and our consciousness. That's not the question. We just tend to listen to the loudest ones and the ones that are our norm growing up. And we make silly decisions for ourselves and for others because of that. Shadow work is definitely a term that many of you have probably heard or seen across Instagram or whatever social media. Can you talk a little bit about the shadow and the persona? At Leslie University, before the virus hit, every semester I'd walk into a classroom and on that classroom, I would see taped to the walls, all these paper plates. And there wouldn't be a name on the front of the paper plate, but there'd be all these things like, I'm a daughter, I'm a girl, I'm kind. I love my family, I've got a pet, I do the best I can. And all these words and qualities and parts of who a student was written on the front of the plate. Knowing what was going on, I, I turned the plate over and I read the back of the plate, which was hidden. It was it, against the wall, no one would know to, to look at that. And it said, I mean to my mother, 
I wish my father and I had a better relationship. My last relationship, when I broke up with it, I did that really wrong and all and stuff like that. That's a simple explanation of a teacher focusing on the pasana and the shadow. The pasana is in my of my identity. Which are the parts that are my public mask, my public face, and I want people to see and know and love. The shadow is which are the parts inside of me that I don't love, that I don't want people to know about because they scare me. I don't want to go there. And if people knew about these parts, how would they love me and appreciate me and value who I am? Together, the persona and the shadow is our ego, is our personality. It's the, it's the two sides of our personality. The dilemma is our ego or personality is, or our mind to some extent, even though it's connected to our body, we have different messages from our ego and our body, somatic psychology, all the time. And the first stage of healing or counseling is, can my shadow and persona know each other? Can, can I be present enough, taking the word presence that people have a hard time understanding, what does that mean? It means, do, am I aware of this is my, my persona speaking? Am I aware this is my shadow speaking? Do I know the fact that as long as they are separate and there's no communication and no bridges, health and healing are going to escape me because I'm gonna be using the same methods I've been using forever, which is separating as opposed to building bridges. So that's one part of counseling using the mind and psychology. The other part is now I'm gonna bring in my body and simple examples are, as I'm sure we've all had, I know I have, is all of a sudden I'll be so excited about something and I'll go and a couple hours later going, I am so hungry. How could I have waited so long to even get that information? So I'm living in my mind, living in my mind. I'm sure my body has been screaming at my mind, food, food, or water, water, or go to the bathroom and pee, or go to the bathroom and pee. And somehow I've been in my mind focusing elsewhere. And those messages coming from my body, I've not even paid attention to. So once we're, after we're dealing with, or at the same time we're dealing with, persona and shadow or the ego, we then need to deal with the ego and the physical body or the organism and having bridges between those two units of our wholeness. Years ago, I had this one roommate who was attractive. She was intelligent. She was in her thirties and she hadn't had a boyfriend for probably a year. And it was making her nuts. She couldn't understand what had gone wrong. And one night she didn't come home. She walked in the door the next morning and it was as if the whole left side of her body was paralyzed or something was really weird the way she was walking and the way she was holding her arm. And when she walked in, she had this big smile on her face and she said, I was kissing, I was doing kissy face in the car all night long. It was great. And I'm going, that's wonderful. Where my mind went was, and your body must have been screaming at you for hours, move, get him off of the left side of your body. We need blood there. You may lose a limb. And she was like, you know what? This was so exciting. And I've been waiting for this moment for so long. I didn't pay any attention to my body whatsoever. But again, you see with these examples, it's building bridges between the soma, between the body and the ego, as opposed to having separations there as part of health and healing. The last part then becomes, and this is what excites me the most. And my last three videos have been focusing on this. And the workshops I do in the future will all be called normalizing mystical moments because I think that's what we all need, particularly in a moment of a virus where we're all going, my anxiety is screaming at me and getting so loud. My depression is overwhelming me. What can I do? It's tricky to change the external world because it is what it is and it's toxic. And we all know that. And when people go, why do I have so much anxiety or depression? I'm going, because you're living in a toxic world, social world. It's like 
that's a normal response. There's nothing wrong with you for having those feelings. The dilemma is how can we join our own consciousness together to focus on ourselves individually and the society culturally to make those changes. Mystical moments is something we have all the time. We're bringing the world to the spirit. So what does that mean? The other day, I was having a new type of tea and a new type of honey. And before I did anything else, I smelled it, I tasted it, and I just had a moment where it's kind of like, wow, what a sweet moment. It was a mystical moment. It was a poignant moment. It was a spiritual moment. And people don't even think that those are noteworthy or happening, but we probably each have 20 to 100 spiritual moments every day. We just don't know what to call them, what to do with them, and to, not to, and to milk them, to nourish those moments as opposed to jumping out of those moments. And we can come up with example after example. If you're petting a cat, if you're, if you're hugging a friend, if you're looking at a sunset, if you're, if you're experiencing the, the sound of the ocean, we all have, if you're just walking down and looking at spring green, which will be happening all over the place really quickly, take a moment and the mind doesn't need to turn off because we're just living on a sensing level, on a tactile level, on a visual level. And in those moments, those are mystical spiritual moments. And somehow we don't give them credit. If we can't change the external world and all that's coming at us, can we at least nourish the moments, the 10 to 50 we have every day, so that we have some degree of normalcy happening between the sweet moments in our lives and all the toxic moments of our lives? And then the question becomes, okay, those moments are a great start, but what do I do to even make that connection larger or stronger or more normal? And for me, the question is, we all understand our ego or personality. We live there our entire lives. The dilemma is our ego or personality is probably formed from birth to five. Virginia Satir, one of my mentors in this world who created, it's a silly story, I won't go into it, the world of family therapy. They call either the mother or the founder of family therapy back in the day. She estimated and she saw 300,000 clients in her lifetime and was really one of the first women who had a national presence back in the 60s and 70s. When she came to Boston, she would fill the auditorium about with her knowledge on family therapy, okay? And, and these days we're still struggling to have enough women have that power and have that role, okay? In so many ways. She would talk about the fact that by the time a child is five years old, they've probably had 500,000, also known as half a million social interactions with others in their lives. It could be words, it could be a, a face, it could be someone walking away from them. It could be something that's bad vibing them. It could be a body posture. It could be stuff that's, that's either coming from the mind or the body, but they'd have a child with over 500,000 interactions, which means our ego forms, and you all know the words defense mechanisms or coping strategies. That's why our ego forms, which is a necessary part of development. But if we're only living in our ego or our personality, in the intent there is to defend ourselves and cope both of which are important. However, once again, where's health and healing? Where are mystical moments not coming from your ego? So then we go into, is there a second grounding point inside of us that we're missing? And the second grounding point, we know the words, you wanna call it your soul, you wanna call it your inner wisdom, you wanna call it your essence, you wanna call it your being. I mean, with the different words in the West and there are so many words coming from the East, all of which talk about that second grounding point. The word for that in our culture, it would be called the perennial philosophy. It's been everywhere for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, but it's the best kept secret on the planet. We don't talk about it. 
And what it's basically saying is we have an ego and the ego is there to do its job. And we hear that loudly and clearly. We also have a second grounding point, which as far as I'm concerned, is resides in our right hemisphere. We have a, a level of consciousness that most people are not aware of. And we need both grounding points. And then we need, need to know how to go back and forth between both of those. And it's not an on and off switch. You can take one step in each direction, four or five, six, a hundred, it's a spectrum. But if we've got both grounding points and we can travel back and forth between them, that would be wholeness. That would be using our right and left hemisphere. And that's where health and healing would happen. And again, all of our spiritual and psychological heroes and heroines from hundreds and thousands of years all live there as their norm. And we wonder, how did Jesus do that? How did Muhammad do that? How did Mother Teresa do that? How did MLK do that? And we can name a hundred other people, if not a thousand other people. How are they able to do that? And I think the answer is they had two grounding points. They had their ego for interacting with other humans, and they had their being or soul for interacting with our identity beyond our ego, beyond our personality. And I think that's the most important thing that I or anyone will ever talk about, because if enough of us really live there, we would change the world. And I think everything about our society is built to make us sick. Of course, if we're not even checking into our physical body and we're not connecting spiritually, a lot of us end up feeling completely imbalanced and in pain and having all of these different symptoms that ultimately like our body is saying, Hey, like, hello, pay attention to me, pay attention to me, please. Like these are red flags. These are messages. It's like alarm clocks. And most of us won't listen to those alarms until something really dramatic happens or something that can be very transformational. And again, for the reason why is we can go back a long time, but capitalism rules the, rules the, rules the world at the moment, which is silly and off. And if you have healthy people, it, that system wouldn't exist to the extent that it does at the moment. We all know that. We just don't know what to do about that. And as you hear me say at the end of every class, I always say to people, be bold, be kind, Jedi Knights, because I think we're all Jedi Knights. There is a force that we are all connected with. And I think the two qualities of being bold and being kind, if you're just bold, that's not working. If you're just kind, that's not working either, because the balance of being, being bold and being kind is what we all need to do to move ourselves and culture in a direction. And what does being bold mean to you? Internally and externally. Bold means to me, if I need to get a drink. I'll go back to one of the stories from Me, Myself, and Mindfulness, which was written for young kids. And it talks about that in one of the books. Um, and back, back in that book, I didn't even get into the four parts of the brain because I was afraid to get into the spiritual part of it because people would go, what's, what's, this is really weird. So I stopped at just the distinctly human part of the brain. But one of the students back in the day that helped write that book with me and did all the artwork, she was a nanny at the time. And there was an eight-year-old child she was working with. And she would talk to the child about the, his three brains. And one day he came back from school and said, I got it. It happened in school today. And he was so excited. And then she said, the student said, please tell me what happened. She said, he, he said, I was in class. I wasn't feeling well. I raised my hand and asked the teacher if I can go to the nurse. And the teacher said, no. My reptile brain wanted to fight with her immediately. And I heard the reptile brain inside of me screaming. Rah! My mammal brain was kind of going, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling bothered. I'm feeling this person is unkind. What's happening here? My distinctly human part of the brain said, raise your hand again and ask if you can get a drink of water, which he did. And the teacher said, yes. And he was, as he was walking for the water, he was going, well, movement is good. Water is good. And that was a great example of an eight-year-old boy kind of going, 
I heard the loudness of my reptile brain. I heard the loudness of my mammal brain and I had enough wisdom internally to begin to go, now where's my human part of the brain? And he was only looking towards his, he didn't know, but he was looking towards his right and left hemisphere at the same time. And look what he was able to do at that moment in time. Isn't that what we wanna be teaching children at preschool everywhere so that they don't get confused about the narratives inside? I mean, isn't that our norm there? So boldness and kindness, he was being bold. I raised, he raised his hand, asked if he can go to the nurse. And when his teacher said no, he wasn't being disruptive, but he was being bold again saying, can I have a drink of water? That's bold. Most students wouldn't probably do that. Most grownups probably wouldn't do that. And the kindness is the way he used his words. He didn't kind of, you know, he, he internally heard the reptile and mammal part of the brain, but that's not the word. And, and hearing it is fine. That's never going to go away. But what he put out there in the environment was using his distinctly human part of the brain, put his needs out there kindly. And do we all do those moments? Probably not. But do we, are we all capable of doing those moments more so and learning about those moments that they exist and when to use them? You bet. One other story about that. My training, I studied with Carl Rogers. I worked with him a little bit. Studied with Regina Satir and worked with her a little bit. Carl taught me more than anything else how to have a large group of humans and create a safe space back in the 1980s. It's like, no, you have to create a safe space before any of the stuff could happen. Virginia taught me, if you're working with any human being, you've got to add to what they're doing. Don't take anything away from who they are and what they're doing, add to it. Because if you try and take stuff away, their defense mechanisms will be what they're using. If you want them to use a different part of their personality, of their soul, you can't take something away from someone, you got to add to them. And then psychosynthesis, which is Roberto Astagioli, who is a contemporary of Freud and Jung. And as far as I'm concerned, the, the master back in the day that most people don't know about or read about often enough, Freud said, this is a, this is a quote I'm going to misquote, but the intention was there. He said, I want to look at the basement of someone. And I want he wanted to look at their shadow in their mind. I get that. Roberto Astagioli said, I want to look at the entire house. I don't want to just look at the basement. I want to look at every room in the house, including the rooms closest to the sun. Okay, and I'm going, well, this is what I want to learn how to do. And where Freud talked about psychoanalysis, analyzing the psyche, left hemisphere, Roberto Astagioli said, I, this was called psychosynthesis. I want to help human beings synthesize their different parts. Neither of those are alive, Freud, Jung, and Astagioli, but psychosynthesis was a four-year training program I had in it and really was the grounding point for me, getting a sense of my ego and personality and my soul or my inner essence back in my 20s and 30s, which has been also a part of who I've been as a teacher and a therapist for decades. And they all said, boldness has people, boldness can be one's reptile mind. Boldness can be one's mammal mind. If you're going behind that, you've got to balance boldness with kindness because we're, we're more than individuals. We're, part, we're, we're individuals and members of a species. The image that works best for me is, am I a wave in the ocean or the entire ocean of water? And the answer is, I'm both. You can't have a wave in an ocean by itself. It's got to be connected to the entire ocean. And at the same time, there are individual waves. When you were talking about teaching preschool children these concepts, and when we think about the shadow, the persona, the parts of ourselves that we're suppressing and how that shows up just with our relationships with ourselves, but how this impacts our relationships with others and our roles in society through our professions or within our family systems, it can kind of show where all of this 
toxicity is born from in our world, the chaos in our world, if people are acting solely on certain levels to achieve different things without that interconnectedness, without that kindness. I think many of us struggle with like, how is this? Why is this happening? Like, why is our collective like this? Why are we going through these things? Why? And even like right now with what's going on, I mean, no matter what, you can't get peace from the world. I started recognizing, especially during the pandemic and everything, because I noticed I tried to get balance or grounding from the external. And that's not to negate the importance of environment because we're basically like complicated plants. Like if we're in an environment with toxicity, that's going to show up in our mind, body, spirit in a certain kind of way, especially when it comes to family systems. However, it's finding that balance and recognizing that we have an internal ecosystem and we can access that calm and peace, at least for me through mindfulness and where I put my attention and where I'm focusing. Cause if I'm focusing and listening to the news, uh, that's just going to create more stress in the body. Two things. I love your phrase. We have an internal ecosystem and I didn't write that down, but I hope you write something or do something with that phrase down the line. Cause we're eco psychology is becoming so normative these it's becoming normal where people are going well what do i do i'm going to go for a walk in nature or just grow a plant or look at a plant and how that's a mystical spiritual healing moment that an internal ecosystem is so right on but i think a lot of people don't understand the the power of of nourishing the internal ecosystem in a way that brings peacefulness inside of themselves so love the phrase mindfulness that's a great topic first of all the words everywhere and i think most people think it's sitting down and meditating for a long time which works. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's one possibility. My wife, who you also know as a teacher from Lesley University, she's a great meditator. She can sit for, for a chunk of time every day and do that. I, who's had ADHD since I was a child, and back in the day when my when before ADHD was even known as a, as a diagnosis, so I was never diagnosed except self-diagnosed, I remember my parents, when they were having a long time, they were going out, they would hire two babysitters because I would, I, would, I would destroy one of them. They just couldn't deal with the degree of vibration that I have. So I think for someone like myself, sitting for 20 minutes or 40 minutes may be the perfect thing to do. But if I'm, and Jane will be great at this, my wife, she'll go, when we're walking together, she'll go, look at spring green, look at that green over there. Quiet the mind, just look for a moment. Look, look at the moon over there. Look at the clouds over there. Listen to that bird chirping. And she would do stuff again and again and again. There would be a trigger to kind of going, if I'm looking at those moments in time, those are spiritual moments. Those are mystical moments because my mind chatter, my ego is not in charge of my mind. I'm in charge of my mind. I'm going to go back to the word presence again because I think mindfulness and presence are two concepts that people don't understand. Presence means I am in a situation where it's not all the stuff out there that I'm looking at or feeling or thinking at the moment that's causing the mind chatter. It's not my personality or ego causing the mind chatter. It's I am in a being moment, a soul moment where I am witnessing all that's happening. And we all know that part of us. We all know that whatever's going on outside, there's a part inside that's observing all that. We all know that. The dilemma is that part becomes so weak that the stuff outside, the contents of our consciousness control who we are as human beings. And the dilemma is all those contents are important. If, I'm, if, if there's a car coming at me, I want to see that car coming at me. However, if I'm walking in nature or just walking on the sidewalk, I don't want to be on, on. I want to be on, enjoy the moment. I'm going to get to a place that I'm going to get to, but let's be in that moment. So I think, again, if my mind is where my body is at a moment in time, that's mindfulness. 
I think what happens oftentimes is I'm walking to get from one place to another place and I'm thinking about what I'm gonna do once I get to that other place. Or I'm driving my car from one place to another place or sitting down and my mind is going, let me worry about the past, let me plan my future. That's anxiety. Only because I do need to plan, but we plan again and again and again and again and again and again, attention energizes. So I'm building the wrong thing as opposed to going in this moment in time, I've done my planning for chatting with you this morning. I spent a half hour yesterday thinking about stuff and then it's like, let it all go, Neil. Let it all go. Don't, don't replan and replan and replan because there's other moments in my life where, and even that planning is my mind and my body are in the same place. But if I'm walking to work, walking to get someplace, I want to have moments where I'm not planning that while I'm walking. Enjoy the moment. And I think that's mindfulness and there are different parts of mindfulness. And I think that's being present. And again, going back to the right hemisphere, the left hemisphere, the left hemisphere is coping, coping, strategizing, strategizing, keeping me alive, keeping me and my family okay, making sure it works okay, making sure I'm saying the right stuff. All that's important. My right hemisphere is kind of going, what about the, what about the sweet moments? What about the mystical moments? Aren't those as important? And how do I live there? And we can do that. We can do that easily. And that's a mindful moment. That's me being present in the moment. And I can give you so many stories from students and from clients over the years who, when they understood the fact that they're not their mind chatter, their identity is more than that. I'm not my personality. That serves me well as a tool in the toolbox, but there are other tools in the toolbox. Um, I'm not just the basement of my house. I've got a full house, including a deck on the roof. That other grounding point, once again, is so powerful. And I do want to say one other thing, because I think it's so important. I love my videos. It's called Transcending Times. I know you have that there. And it's not transcending, it's trance, or trans hyphen ending. But the last, the current last three of them, talking about the second grounding point, um, I think is just a place where most humans don't even conceptually understand in their left hemisphere. And before people move into that mo those moments, understanding it cognitively is probably where we as a culture need to go and as individuals need to go. And for 25 minutes, I think it's an easy ride to understand what that concept is. So check out the, the current ones from Transcending Times. Again, my intention there is how do we have people use their left hemisphere to at least conceptually understand what's possible. Because otherwise people are, are lost and it's hard to make a movement when we don't know cognitive. If you can bring your left hemisphere along for the ride, that makes it simpler than the left hemisphere going defend, defend, cope, cope. It's like, no, enjoy, enjoy, nurse, nurse. How can I have the human beings work with that as well? I'm gonna put all of his information in the description if you wanna check out his YouTube videos children and dogs or any animal, they're just in that mindfulness state. Like when you see little kids walking around, they're like, oh, look at this, look at this, look at this. And for adults, it's kind of like hard because it's like, oh, we need to be somewhere. We need to go somewhere. And it's just that process. Or even my dog, when I'm taking her for a walk, she wants to smell like every little smell or when it's raining, she likes to smell the rain and just, she'll just sit there and like sniff or in the spring, she'll smell like flowers and then start sneezing afterwards. So she teaches me to slow down. And one of the things that I've noticed that has now become kind of a mindfulness practice for me is I love finding pennies on the floor.
on the ground. Since I was a little girl, I loved pennies. I loved looking for Abraham Lincoln on the back. Um, so now what I do is when I'm on walks with my dogs, I'll find these pennies and I get so excited because it's, you know, it's embodying that inner childhood excitement. And I'm always like thinking about, it's just like gifts from God, like gifts in the moment. And it's really nourished my morning walks. Cause now I'm like very, and like today I found a dime and eight pennies and that was wild. I was like, Whoa, <laughs> uh, but it, it's little, little gifts like that where we can find these. But I think most of us, when we're starting out with mindfulness, like how you were saying, Jan helps you and, and kind of co-facilitates that sometimes. And I think we need that structure to help us. And even listening to music can be a spiritual moment. Every time I listen to a song the first time, I really like to have presence with it because I know it imprints a memory on my brain when I listen to. And it's also like one of those things, it's like after you listen to a song for the first time, you'll never get that moment back. And so I like to really be deep in that moment. Uh, but some of the activities when you and I both share a passion for dancing and partner dance, uh, definitely I've spent more time in like Latin styles of dance. I really would love to learn swing one day. It's on my bucket list. Uh, but how has your experience with dance and swing dance, how has that expanded your consciousness of what it means to connect with ourselves and the collective? And just in general, how has it helped you just grow and evolve as a person? Most people struggle with their bodies. Most people wish, I think most people wish they could have their consciousness without the bodies getting in the way because it's not right, it's not perfect. And we as a culture do a terrible job of helping people understand that it's your vehicle. If you want to change it, try and change it. If not, try and love it. But at least have sweet conversations with it because otherwise you're, you're not having, you're, you're separating again, which, which tends not to work ever. For me, partner dancing brings me into my body. It brings me into the current moment. I can't do, I'm with another, freestyling, my mind can be wherever it wants to be because it's me and my body. If I'm not going to bump into someone, there's an issue there. And I love the power of freestyling. However, in partner dancing, if there's anything that I'm doing, I'm affecting another human being. So I've got to be beyond my own personality. My consciousness has to at least take in another person. And if I'm in a dance floor, I've got to take in all the couples dancing around me also. So it's not just one person moving. It is a whole group of human beings moving. And for people that understand that well, I'm with my music having a sweet moment. I'm with my partner having a sweet moment. And I'm with all the people around me having a sweet moment because the idea is not to send my partner into another person or walk into another person myself. And it's all nonverbal communication in different ways. It's hear hearing, seeing, and touching. And the level of communication there is fierce. And again, if we're if I'm with a bunch of other people that do that well, it's amazing the small amount of space we will need and what we can do with a partner in that small amount of space. And for hours and hours and no one gets hurt. And it's kind of like, you can't be spending your partner six time in this little space and not hurting anybody else. And it's like, well, I can if I understand the paths the other people are dancing around me. And if the leaders are all looking out for each other, it's a sweet moment in time and it's beyond one, one's personality. Who doesn't go to music or movement when they're trying to heal themselves? And that goes back for indigenous to indigenous cultures for thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of years at the same time. So it's a sweet moment. It's connecting my mind with my body. It's connecting my body with other people's bodies. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Aren't all those parts of it wonderful? Um, and again, I can also do my Latin dancing um, and my smooth dancing, but 
live in the world of West Coast Swing these days because I find it, if I go to any club, any place on the planet, I can dance that. And as much as I love Latin music, I've got to go to a Latin club um, or go to a place on the planet like Miami where that's the norm there or Central or South America. And how sassy and fun is that? But living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there are a few clubs here that are great, but if I'm going to any function whatsoever or any place whatsoever, West Coast Swing is the dance that's most useful on the planet. And I want to be able to dance whenever I hear a song. Especially with my my manager brain trying to control. And I think if anyone has a listener here that has like a history of like trauma, trying to control our external. And as a follow, I had to learn how to surrender control fully. And that was such a big win for me because that need to control everything on the outside and then entrusting your body and yourself to whoever's leading you. That was a big thing for me, like healing from some of the trauma that I had that was to my physical of learning how to connect with myself. It's like every moment, like you have to know where your foot's pointing. Like you have to be listening to the music, listening to your partner. That was part of my process and allowing someone to lead me. That was very spiritual because a lot of the times I have like fought against my intuition or fought against these messages and guidance that I've had in prayer from God. And I would just be like, no, my way or the highway. That dancing process is what enabled me to really surrender the anxiety around being led and allowing that part of my spirit to lead me in other aspects of my life. A word we came up with here years ago, I'm sure other people have come up with this word in other places, ambidanceress. So many of us can lead and follow both, which is kind of cool because following is such a sweet moment in times like driving a car. Are you the driver? Or are you sitting in the passenger seat and just enjoying the scenery and enjoying the movement of what's going on? And as a follower, that's so sweet. And as a leader, you get to decide what you want to do. And these days, the conversation between both leader and follower is, is less in Latin dancing because it comes from a Latino culture and the leader is going to lead and the follower is going to follow, which is perfectly fine. West Coast Swing in the past decade or 20 years is going, well, shouldn't it be a conversation? So we can almost, there is a leader and a follower, but if we're doing that well, we can go back and forth between in a moment in time, who's leading and who's following. And for certain patterns, once you initiate it, the follower takes over for a while and the complication there is amazing. The other thing is, Learning it is one piece, left hemisphere. Once you go out dancing, hopefully it's a matter of turn the left hemisphere off unless you're leading, but even as a leader, just let the music guide you. And again, we say oftentimes in West Coast Swing, there are three partners. There's a leader, there's a follower, and there's the music. And which one is in charge at a moment in time? Depending on the moment in time. But the music is always the bottom rhythm that we're dancing to and through. For anyone who's listening and maybe they don't resonate with dance as a stress relief, that's definitely one of my, if I get stressed out, I just start moving my body, turn on some music and dance. How can listeners expand their threshold for stress? We talked about how this world can be incredibly toxic, very chaotic and cause a lot of trauma. Um, Things are always going to be happening. If we pay attention to the news, this interconnected world that we live in, we're we're, we're aware of way too much information at one time. So how can we increase our threshold to stress, knowing that when we're in a stressed state, 
parts of our brain shut down and we go into that reptilian fight or flight. So how can we expand that threshold to connect with our other aspects of our being, which is our spirit is a much quieter voice than these other aspects. And how can we just expand if we think about it as like a rubber band, how can we expand it and also change the material? So it's more flexible. So many parts of that, to that sentence or those questions. Expressive Art Therapies, which is one of the majors at Leslie and growing major everywhere, basically says you can do art, you can do journaling, you can do and you know, have a psychodrama in your mind acting something out. It's eliminating the stuff from your mind and your body, which is what we need to do. You can walk through nature, you can sip a cup of tea, you can go and listen to loud music and jump out down and pound your arms everywhere. What works for different people to try and take the fullness in the body and the fullness in the mind and have moments where you are eliminating we know this well from physically eating. Everything we swallow needs to be eliminated. If you don't, you die. You don't, you don't have a bad hair day. You physically die. Put something in your body, got to get it out. That's true physically. Isn't that true psychologically? But if you keep taking stuff in and taking stuff in and taking stuff in and don't spend enough time getting it out, you're clogging your own intestines, you're clogging your own stomach, you're clogging your own throat. And I think we do that all the time. What fears, what, scare, what fears me, what scares me the most at the moment is as we're getting more and more stuff coming at us and that's being written about again and again and again, our consciousness does not have time to evolve to what's going on. My fear is we're gonna become less intelligent as a species because the reptilian and mammal part of the brain, which are the loudest ones, will start ruling us as ruling us more so in society as opposed to getting into the boldness and the kindness part of it as well as the balance and i'm not certain that we're not almost doomed there unless as humans we kind of go we're following the right the wrong river we're following the wrong path because it's partial and we need to somehow balance that and isn't that vitally important yes so eliminating as far as i'm concerned is so powerful having mystical moments is so powerful. And again, as you said, in the course of a day, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Well, physiologically, we know we need to sleep and that's not our choice, that's biologically built inside of ourselves. And we know these days that more people are not sleeping well. And we know these days that more people are saying, businesses will make more money if the people that work there are less stressed and sleep better. We've not gotten to the point yet of going, let's bring this in for health of the individual and for profits of the business. And that may be the, 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 the bathroom window with which that comes in to be the norm, but having humans that are working from their reptile mammal brain more from their distinctly human brain isn't good for business, isn't good for health, isn't good for the culture, isn't good for, for, for the world. And somehow we need to bring in a larger part of who we are to make those changes. And eliminating is as important psychologically as it is physically. But again, it's one of these secrets. Let's not tell anybody. And again, if we can start that with the youngest, youngest, youngest people and make that their norm, isn't that where our energy ought to be? Because they'll have not this generation of, of humans or the next generation, but the next generation Let's start working with them already because it's hard to separate primary learning in our lives ever, ever. And the good news is people like you make me encouraged because I hear a younger generation going, I'm using these, my words perfectly and I've got these concepts already. So for me, the question is, 
How do we make that more of the norm in all ways, with words, with podcasts, with YouTube, with everywhere? How do we not make these messages, these vital messages, the norm? I think people can understand the words and can even be with pods and groups of people can practice that together but it seems like the world everywhere, the culture, not, 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 the, not the natural world, biological world, understands the fact that we need off time. Uncle Albert, Albert Einstein, I call him Uncle Albert all the time. I can hardly imagine he cares about that. He would say, and as many quotes of his saying, he was not smarter than the other physicists. He just knew how to take time off and let the answer come to him, which is a great example of intuition which is instead of the cognitive mind going, analyze, analyze, think, 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 let it go. It'll come back to you. The biological and psychological wisdom we have inside of ourselves will work it when we're not consciously focusing on it. Let the right hemisphere come in and do its job, please. And he knew that. And we all know that somewhere inside. So for anyone listening it's just, it's an open invitation for you to kind of explore what feels good and maybe think about when you were a kid, what did you like to do Enter that discovery process and just being open to maybe just trying this and seeing how you feel for a week and have an experiment where you just try it out for a week or try to incorporate some of the things Neil has taught about today. What a great idea. Going back to what you love as a child is brilliant. Going back to the fact that it doesn't matter what it is you're doing, if it serves you well, I'm a millennial. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I think we're bringing in, it's kind of through observation where it's like, Hey, this isn't working. And the rates of, of mental struggle struggle in younger generations is just going up. And I feel like most of us are like, we need to change something. Like we need to fix this because the world that we were born into is going to make us sick. <laughs> we need to change that. So I'm finding with even just these younger generations, more people are starting to become educated about this and have these conversations on how can we live our true authentic selves and embody what healthy means to us. And in fact, if the younger generation such as you and the baby boomers such as me who lived in the, in the time of the sixties and seventies can ever join forces for a decade before we all pass um, the effect that we can have on the world, both with numbers and with finances would be amazing. Um, so there's always that there's always those possibilities any moment in time, who knows? I do have one other thing I'm going to say, though, people always ask me, what can we if we had a large group of people trying to all share one intention together to change the world, what would that be? And you talked about Pennington, Abraham Lincoln, one of my favorite quotes from him is when he was president, he said, I just passed an amendment today, the 13th Amendment which allowed people of color to vote. One of the things that had to be added to get that bill, that amendment to pass our government was that corporations could, could, be have, could have the same rights as human beings. Every state now has a group trying to go, can we take that right away from corporations? Originally corporations existed for a moment in time and then they had to stop. So if there were six rich people that wanted to have a railroad go from Baltimore to Boston, they could become a corporation have that happen and then this corporation had to cease and desist okay these days corporations run the world but if human beings kind of said let's get together and join forces to end the power of corporations that would probably be the easiest way to have humans make decisions again as opposed to corporations with 99.9 percent .9 of the world's wealth make decisions 
wouldn't that change the world as quickly as anything else we could possibly do? And that's happening in every state. Right. Thank you for that addition. It's something for all of us to think about as we move forward, work on ourselves, and we change on the micro, we affect the macro. Because like you were saying before, we're not just a wave, we're not just the ocean, we're both. And it's the cross-section of working on ourselves and working on the world where we can actually build that momentum to see the change that we wish to see. The way every class ends and every podcast ends and everything ends, be bold, be kind, Jedi Knights. And as someone else in our class said, and airbenders, whichever kind of bender you are. (laughs) You're also not only a Jedi Knight, but an airbender. Oh my God, feel the power. From my heart to yours, thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I love creating it. As always, you can connect with me on Instagram at JULHouseholder or my website, juliehouseholder.com. I love hearing how you've integrated these episodes into your life. And if you feel called, please leave a review on iTunes so we can help others reach new heights. 